Conviction is brought to you by Three Rings Circus Productions. For links to our valued sponsors and all the show notes from this podcast, please visit our website, threeringscircus.com.au. As we learnt earlier in this series, Project Gymea was set up by the New South Wales Police Commissioner with a two-fold purpose to watch and collect admissible evidence on key underworld figures and almost more importantly, look for evidence of their association and protection by corrupt New South Wales police. They had already uncovered an association between crime boss Les Kalachi and Detective Bob Irwin. In this episode, the web of police corrupt involvement becomes even more complex. So I was uh, pretty much back waiting for all, everything to happen from up Stroud and um, I virtually uh, was in the office I think from memory and we get a phone call from the team that Marskell's out, he's on his way back so that means everyone's coming back. Uh, the van, obviously the caravan that was going to stay up there, Marskell is coming back and he's contacted Kalachi on the way back on a mobile phone. And obviously believing that uh, the mobile phones are all right. He's um, told Kalachi he should be two hours off. He's obviously just got back onto the highway. Um, and that everything's good, he's got it, but he had a small problem and he'll speak about it when he gets there. So uh, sure enough, we're all in in the office. We let the guys who had been up at Stroud follow him all the way back to um, Kalachi's. And I'm just listening on the intercepts. And uh, there was, from memory, Parker and Kalachi and Bonnie waiting for Marskell to come back. And uh, sure enough, up he goes. We, we get him coming through the foyer, carrying a parcel. Comes up into Kalachi's place and they're all waiting, bated breath, and Marskell comes in. And uh, the first thing he mentions is his arm. He, he told Kalachi he's got the gear, but he's done some massive burns on his arm and uh, it's not good. Uh, Kalachi... You know, says, whatever you do, don't go to the hospital and tell them what you've been doing. He says, of course not, I'm not going to do that. And uh, I've got to go and get it looked at, though. And Kalachi then looks at the gear and Marskell said, the only problem is it's still a bit wet. He didn't have enough time to dry it all. He just wanted to get back and get this burnt looked at. So he pulls out on the kitchen bench and uh, he's got a set of scales. So old Les grabs the scales and, and the bag of gear and throws it on the, the scales measures it out. We didn't know at the time how much it was, but he said, great, great, great. And he, anyway, to cut the story short, Marskell's left the gear there, the set of scales, a bit of paraphernalia and uh, a bag of gear, which has been placed apparently into a uh, massive big Tupperware container. Les gets on the phone and, and rings someone that we don't know. We've never heard of this guy before. And all we know is he's uh, from Maroubra and he, he's arrived, so luckily enough he's arrived in his car so we can do a transport check. We find out what the address is and while he's up there we have a look where the address that he lives at, thinking that uh, he's going to take the gear, which he does. He sounds shit scared, he's only a young guy. From from my guessing he's just one of the guys who buys off Les and, and distributes and very well trusted. He uh, takes the gear from them and uh, they're happy. They've got their gear. They just think it's going to be a couple of days to dry out before they can start to distribute it. 
obviously their intention is to use the place up the coast again to manufacture more drugs. And this guy's disappeared. Our crew take him back. Meanwhile, I've, they've all been out for you know a week or so up the coast. I've jumped out of the office and gone over and joined in the follow and followed him back to his house where he lived with his parents in Maroubra. Watched him go in. He's um, taken the gear into the garage, <clears throat> put the roller door down and the conversation on the telephone intercept that it's all secured in the garage and not to worry. It's time for the team to become proactive. They begin to hatch a plan that would link Kalachi to Detective Irwin without divulging the existence of Project Gaimia. We've had a, a massive meeting back at the office, or the, everyone did. I actually stayed on the premises because we, we've got to stay there now full-time watching the drugs and what, what it's doing or who's coming in and who's coming out just in case someone comes in and, and grabs it, uh, unbeknown to us. And we found out that um, this guy is a known supplier and does have a, a history. So there's one thing up our sleeve and we're thinking how can we actually impact the corrupt side to see and test it whether uh, it's going to work or not. We had a a knowledge that Irwin also knew a number of the Maroubra detectives along with an associate of his by the name of Craig McDonald. Now Craig McDonald was a detective sergeant at the time. He was on leave. I don't know whether he was suspended, I can't remember, or whether he was just on leave at the time. Um, he had been in the job for a lot of, a lot of years. He's in the armed holdup squad and a lot of those units. But he was good mates with Irwin. And we knew that he also had a lot of mates at, at Maroubra Police, and especially the young ones. Some of our guys, actually, who worked in our unit, knew them but didn't know them personally, but knew certain ones that they associated with. And what we did is uh, our bosses then went and handpicked one of the young detectives from Maroubra, brought him into the office and virtually asked him, <clears throat> which he didn't really have much of a choice because he was more or less signed into the unit, and he was asked then to go and do a search warrant at these premises to locate the drugs and see what the fallout was going to be. So the very next morning, I think I sat there all night, watching with one other person to make sure nothing happened. Of course, no, nothing did happen until 6am in the morning when we might call this detective J1. He is mentioned in the parliamentary reports, which are all public under Operation Jade. J1 and his crew came in at 6 o'clock in the morning with a search warrant that uh, he had received anonymous information, a tip-off, that drugs were stored, which is true, at the premises. Uh, and it was from an informant, and the informant being us, he doesn't have to nominate who the informant was. Um, and he executed the warrant. There located in the back of the garage was 3.5 kilos of wet powder with a set of scales in a bag in a Tupperware container. So he drags the uh, young fella down to the station for questioning. He doesn't want to say anything. And we were happy with that. The plan was, was to uh, see what the outcome was, and we virtually just wanted this guy to leave the police station and start making phone calls. So there was no arrest made. He was taken back. He didn't want to be interviewed. He wasn't charged. He was just told that uh, we were going to fingerprint all the items and see whose fingerprints came up. And if this guy's fingerprints came up onto the items, well, he was going to be in trouble. And uh, virtually that just to wait and see what happened once the police made all the inquiries. And, of course, the first thing he does, he goes and rings Kalachi. Kalachi was spewing that he'd rang him straight away and Kalachi couldn't believe 
what had happened. The drugs had been already seized by the police. It took so long with all the Sudafed tablets popping and all the setup of the lab. And in uh, 24 hours, what he thought he was going to be distributing, you know, kilos of amphetamines was gone and was now in the hands of the police. And he'd realised that he had touched everything. His fingerprints were over everything. And of course, you know, you can imagine what the TI like, the telephone intercepts and the uh, listing device. He was going off for like 12 hours. Everyone that came in, he was telling and. The evidence there for us was great. Um, he hadn't made any approaches yet, but the following morning, I think it was the 2nd of July, at uh, 10 past 7 in the morning, we followed Kalachi straight over to Bobby Irwin's house. The trap was set, the bait taken. Kalachi was about to call in all his favours. Enter Detective Bob Irwin. Unfortunately, we didn't have intercepts or any around Irwin's house so we don't know what the conversation was, but you guess what it was all about, the fingerprints um, and about the worry, concern. And obviously Erwin knew what he's into, and there's no doubt about it from, from my point of perspective, uh, because that afternoon Erwin meets McDonald outside the task force backs office. I think it was, uh, sorry, the next day at 1.52pm from memory on records that we got it. And guessing that the conversation was that um, you know J1 better than me and this is the story. Um, Kalachi's got a problem. He's handled the gear and the gear's uh, obviously now in custody of the police, J1. And this is coming through also on, on Les Kalachi's intercept in the house. He's telling people what had gone on and that he's got uh, some friends that are going to look after things. So there's no doubt about it that Erwin uh, and McDonald knew what they were doing and they were working on Kalachi's side. And uh, we sort of planned that this is what, what was going to happen with the association between Erwin, McDonald and J1. And, of course, next thing, uh, J1 does get a phone call from uh, Craig McDonald, who was known as Snidely, that was his nickname, and uh, to meet and have a talk. And, you know, we were told J1 basically this is what was going to happen. We had him wear a body wire. And this, this was very hard for him. He was just a young detective, a couple of years in the job. And uh, it was only associated through these guys because they were higher level detectives and they played golf with him in a, in a police golf club that they'd started. And uh, that was the association. He didn't know him too well. He hadn't worked with him a lot. But, you know, I suppose they were respected in those days because these, these older detectives had been the armed hold-up unit and been around the job a lot. And that was it. He's uh, poor old J1 now looking at going to have a meeting with this uh, hardcore detective who appeared to be corrupt and was going to uh, tell him that he had to wipe fingerprints off the gear and uh, would probably be paid for it and that's what we're anticipating and of course the meeting did take place uh, there is a, again a lot of records through the police integrity commission hearings at a later stage and are on public record and uh, if you read into what's been said on these the meeting at the meeting uh, McDonald virtually said that uh, J1 would get $3,500 if he did the job. 
that he'd receive, uh, McDonald would receive a thousand. There was five hundred for the courier. I'm assuming that Erwin uh, got the five hundred. Nothing was proven, obviously, that Erwin did get the five hundred, but um, that's what would have seen. And uh, from you know stuff that Kalachi was saying, that's what was it was costing him X amount. On the listening device, it was all talked in riddles, and uh, J1 was told now that he was playing A grade, which is a common thing with the ones who were green lighting and corrupt. They had to play A grade if they were going to be on that team, and they'd be looked after and all the rest. And that's basically what happened. You know, now here we were, we were put in that position where we're looking at investigating corrupt cops that were linked with uh, organised crime syndicates and here we had it straight away. Corruption. The dictionary definition of corruption is as follows. Dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power, typically involving bribery. The one common denominator that this definition fails to mention that drives almost all corruption is money. Participants of corruption generally risk everything for financial gain, driven by either greed or need or both. The corrupt police had lost their moral compass. Did they want more drugs on the streets? Probably no. Did they want dangerous criminals avoiding jail time and remaining free to wreak havoc in their communities? Probably no. Did they need and want more money? Yes, and this was their sole motivation. Uncovering corruption involving his fellow police officers was not a pleasant experience. It obviously had to be done. That was the whole purpose of Project Gaimia. However, it was still uncomfortable. It was something uh, that, you, as a cop, you know, you didn't want to have to do. But in a way, if you ever worked on jobs that had been compromised by corrupt police, you were quite happy to do it. <clears throat> I'd certainly worked on a few that I knew of. Nothing uh, had been, you know, come out of some of the jobs. You just knew that some sort of corrupt nature had taken place and you'd spent months on it and it was ruined because uh, someone wanted to get a, a payment out of it and that's what was happening here. And it was uh, later proven that some of the task force backs jobs that uh, a number of detectives had been working on had been compromised by her and he told Clarchy that they were working on certain people and Kalachi had gone and told these uh, drug dealers that his mate who worked in the unit had told him that they're being worked on. And it's a bit of a sickening feeling. You know, I've got nothing against these coppers that were like that, but uh, it's a sickening feeling that when you are doing the honest job and you're trying to catch them and you want to catch them and all your work's been undone by these guys just for money. And, you know, we weren't on good money back in those days. It was average money for what you had to do. Uh, and there was a lot of temptation such as these things, putting putting your nose and even when you did search warrants or these covert search warrants and there's wads and wads and wads of cash just sitting there in front of you and you're counting it. You know, some of these amounts of cash is uh, far greater than what you earn in a year. Um, so you can see why some of them do become corrupt. Kalachi is getting desperate. Unaware of the existence of Project Gaimia, he can't believe how everything is unravelling so quickly. Describing this part of his life as a wave of terror, things become even more grave as one of his team, Dave Parker, is arrested. Craig explains. Kalachi, as I said, he, he's back in his place and I can remember one of the quotes that he said, this is a wave of terror. 
And it was a classic quote that we kept saying because everything from then on just kept snowballing. And it was funny because it wasn't long after that, Dave Parker, who was, I think, relying on getting some of these jobs, had um, decided to go out on his own. And we did have Dave's phone off. And Dave uh, decided to do his own dealing and call up a supplier that we had no idea who he was or where he was. And um, on the intercept, Dave had arranged to meet this guy at a location that they knew. We didn't know about it. Um, and it was on a certain day. It was, I think, over in the uh, St George area, in an industrial area. And uh, that's all we knew. And as Dave's driving down from the coast, he'd, he'd got onto the supplier. And it seemed like it was going to be a large amount of ecstasy tablets. We had no idea how large, but... Uh, going from the conversation. Anyway, they did give us a location on the phone, so we were able to get out there and set up. And it was going to be outside a, uh, a certain factory in, a, in an industrial area on this street. So we managed to get uh, a truck in to the street that could call it. We got a couple of cars either end that were going to be the blockers. And as the deal went place, our whole idea was we were going to uh, race in, like you see in the movies, and screech in and, and stop them. It was quite exciting these times. These are the times that uh, the adrenaline really gets pumping and uh, we could hear Parker getting closer and closer and as he got closer he called the bloke and the bloke said he wasn't far off either. And from memory Parker parked in the street and the person in the eyeball called it that he'd parked on the left-hand side. It was probably about four cars down from the corner. So we got someone in pretty close to the, the cross intersection and we had no idea of the car that was coming in, who was going to supply it. Uh, we had to just wait for the, the eyeball car to call it from our surveillance. And sure enough, they called it. There was a white Mercedes from memory that came in and double parked next to him. And as quick as it happens, this guy just got out of the car, bought it over, Parker popped his um, boot. And the call was go, go, go. And uh, both ends, we had cop cars coming, undercover ones with uh, lots on the roof. The guy uh, had done the handover and Parker had paid him the money. And next thing you know, he's in the Mercedes trying to take off, but luckily our cars had come in and blocked him straight away. Parker was just still at the back of the car, not knowing what's going on. And we've managed to grab Parker and put him to the side on the ground. One of the other guys had uh, managed to park in front of the car and another car had blocked the passenger door and. and and that's so the guy couldn't go anywhere, but he'd thrown the money out. That he'd got off Parker onto the street. Parker was a funny, funny, funny guy. As I said, and I think I described him as a big bullfatted guy, but he was a funny guy. He turned around as to say, what's going on? What's the matter? What's the matter? And, uh, you know, we obviously cautioned him, did the normal thing and said, yeah, we believe you're in possession of an of a amount of drugs brought him over to the back of the car. This is all being videoed. And uh, we op open up the boot that he'd shut. And there was a big bag of uh, golf sticks. And shoved down in the bag was just bags and bags and bags of ecstasy tablets. And he turned around and says, who the fuck put them in there? Who's are those? They're not mine. <laughs> and you know, you just videoed it. You videoed the parcels going in. And this was just a classic response that you always get from some of the guys. and. He just had the most honest-looking face and we're just saying, you mate, you can say whatever you want. It doesn't worry us. Just keep saying that. But uh, it was a good bust and that put Dave Parker away. And this was the start, really, of the finish of the job.
Kalaji was wondering what's, what's going on. You know, Dave Parker had just been arrested. Um, he had lost his three and a half kilos of drugs he'd just produced. He had limited supply left. And, uh, you know, what else could happen? And, of course, the inevitable. And as I said, we're at a stage where now, you know, we'd uh, definitely got two police who had come involved with Kalachi and we're trying to look after him. We had Kalachi as one of the main distributors around the eastern suburbs. And at the time, we had about 56 other criminal suppliers that had uh, become involved through Kalachi. Um, so, yeah, it was about 56, plus the pharmacist as well, who was going to be charged for supplying the Sudafed. So it was time to wrap it up. It had been about uh, eight to nine months since we'd been working on these guys, and during that time with the staff of nine, it had taken its toll on us, and there's a lot of stress involved, long hours, uh, and especially for myself having the uh, difficult times at home as well with, with Jessica being in treated for cancer. So I was glad when the boss said, you know, this is it. The surveillance and intel gathering was complete. Now it's time to pull the trigger on the arrests. Project Gymere was about to flex its muscles and simultaneously arrest over 60 people, including two detectives. This operation had to be timed to perfection and executed perfectly. We had to organise uh, not only a briefing, but we had to organise police to arrest 50-something people simultaneously at one point, one time, and we had to know that everyone was going to be home. And It's a massive job. Uh, so that's what we had to do. Our office had to start putting all the briefs together um, to a point where we could actually hand out the briefs to other detectives in different areas where the criminals lived. A lot of them were in the eastern suburbs, but the rest were central coast, um, inner city, etc. So, yeah, with all that, we, we planned the operation to uh, take place and all the arrests were going to happen simultaneously at 6am. Uh, we had a briefing at 3am with uh, the three commissioners, the Commissioner of Police, the Commissioner of the Commission and the Police Integrity Commissioner, uh, together with all the arresting police that we dragged in and they were informed at 3am what they were going to do and given documents and told where they were going to go and who should be home. Uh, I was given the job actually of giving the briefing uh, to all the police. Fortunately enough, my bosses had seen that I was in a position where for me to go and do arrests and get involved in a long court matter was going to be hard because I had Jessica battling in hospital. Um, so they saw me as more or less the coordinator for the morning. So that's what happened at uh, 3am. They all came in and by about 5am uh, everyone dispersed out to where they are going to be sitting off houses at 6am. 6am come and uh, to our surprise everyone was home and everyone was arrested by quarter past six. It was a massive arrest. The police that went into Kalachi's went in uh, early. And he was actually up ready to go to the gym and um, he had a heap of cocaine out in the kitchen bench that he was cutting up at the time, which was very handy. Uh, we didn't need that at all because over the period of time he'd, he'd you know, been recorded as dealing a large amount of drugs. It wasn't just a small amount, it was a large amount uh, together with, you know, the other things with the police dragging them in. There was a fair few charges on Kalachi. As I said, everything went down perfectly and uh, they all got taken, especially the, the main ones got taken before the courts and uh, bail refused. Kalachi ended up going to court and he pleaded guilty. Um, 
And to our surprise, we were expecting to get 20 plus years. He only got seven years. Um, the DPP, the Department of Prosecution, appealed it straight away and to cut the thing short, Kalachi went back to the appeals court and he was given 22 years non-parole. So he was uh, in for 22 years as of that date. Uh, it was a long sentence and it was well deserved. He'd been doing a lot. Um, the police, they got charged with uh, conspiring to pervert the course of justice. Uh, and at a later date, they got charged with giving false evidence at the Police Integrity Commission hearing. They got a number of years. Bonnie was the same. Parker was in for a fair bit as well. Kalachi, two detectives and over 50 other criminal associates were now in the criminal justice system and neither the criminals nor the police had any knowledge of the role of the team from Project Gaimia. The commissioner already had their next targets in his sights, but for now it was time to clean up the paperwork and have some R&R. Oh, except for Craig, who had a small matter of a 1,000k marathon to address – while all the while supporting Jessica with her cancer treatment. Again, I had uh, been given a limited amount of responsibility in in regards to the arrest phase, which was great. And we still had Jess in hospital. And at this time, I can remember going into um, the hospital with Jess. You had to have an operation. She had an infection in the lungs and she had to be cut open and um, that, that attended to. It was a hard time. I remember it was probably one of the hardest ones for Jess. It was a very painful operation. And uh, I remember waking up that afternoon still in the recovery area. And luckily enough, there was no one else in there at the moment at that time. And the nurses allowed me to sleep the night with her on the floor on a mattress. And as I said, it was one of those operations that really hurt Jess. Um, she'd gone through a lot, but this one seemed to really affect her. It's a really hard thing as a parent to actually sit there and watch everything transpire. She was still going through a chemotherapy treatment. We were still spending the time and the hours in there. And she was a real trooper. And I must admit, you know, I learned so much. Here you are as a parent. You think you're teaching your children a lot of things. And I learned so much by um, her strength and her ability just to get over things, you know. As adults, we tend to whinge at the smallest things and we complain about things. And The kids don't seem to worry about that. They just get on with it. Massive lesson, massive lesson. We hope you enjoyed Series 1 of Conviction, the Craig Guse story. Be sure to join us for the next series as Craig attempts the 1,000km ocean paddle. Project Gaimir are assigned their next targets and the Guze family continue their support of brave Jessica. This podcast is a Three Ring Circus production. This is the true story of Craig Guze as told by Craig himself. Narration by Kim Hart. Written by Craig Guze with additional links by Jay Stewart. Music by Triangle Screen Music, recorded and mixed at Theme Park Creative Music Productions, engineer Jay Stewart, executive producers are Doug Garski, Craig Guse and Jay Stewart.